This is episode 67 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today we are back with our At the Table segment with Dr. Marty Brodsky and Dr. Paula Leslie. We did this segment back on episode 46, and everybody seemed to love it, so we've been trying to (laughs) wrangle everybody back together for a while now, but schedules have not allowed us to, so here we finally are able to do it. So this is a great conversation. I hope you guys all love it. I could just talk to these two all day. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. I just have two quick announcements today. Uh, If you are interested in that MedBridge deal, the uh, premium plan for $95 for one full calendar year, they have extended that deal through the end of December. So you have until December 31st to access those. I really hope you don't wait until December 31st to get your CEUs in. Although one year I realized I was like 0.1 CEU short on December 31st. So um, (laughs) if if that ends up happening to you, I hope it doesn't. But uh, MedBridge is a great great place to get some good CEUs in. They have tons and tons of researchers, clinicians, just really great, well-done speakers. And for $95, you get access to their premium plan. You have access to unlimited CEUs. Uh, also, their home exercise builder is really useful to uh, basically just help print out exercise sheets for your patients in a nice professional way. Uh, your patients can also access their patient portal from their home, so that can really just help with some carryover as well. You also get access to the app, which I love. I'll just sometimes put that app on when I'm driving and listen to some of these awesome speakers. And they also have some patient handouts, which are very valuable as well. So for $95, you can access that premium plan for one full calendar year. Use promo code SYP or you can go to medbridgeeducation.com forward slash SYP as well. And they are an affiliate of this podcast. So um, I do make a little profit when you use that SYP promo code that we put right back into this wonderful podcast to keep it going and keep me maintaining my sanity. So that's my spiel about that. And another announcement that I have to say is that um, as of December 31st, I am no longer with the SLP solution. However, I have created my own brand new site that will be launching in January. So um, all of our current members, all of the current content that's in there now, all of the handouts, the webinars for CEUs, the videos, everything will be moved over to my new website in January. So all of our current members will get a sneak peek at that. And then as soon as uh, we get everybody in and settled, we will open it back up to all of you. So I know a lot of you have been wondering uh, when you can get into the new site and what's going on with it. And there's been a wait list. And yes, it's just because we're trying to work out some other kinks. And as soon as that is open, I promise I will let you all know, but it should be mid-January. So uh, that's my spiel about that. Okay, so hope you guys all enjoyed this episode. I know I loved it so, so much. All right. Hello, everybody. Hi, Teresa. Hello, Teresa. Hello, hello. We are back with uh, Marty Brodsky and Paula Leslie. 
And this is our at the table segment, although we've just been tossing around a few different other titles to call it. Paula wants it to just be Teresa, Marty and Paula fireside chats, but we we can discuss those later. But um, we are back. Yes, we did one of these episodes a few months back and, and everyone seemed to love it. And I always love chatting with these guys. So I'm so happy that Months and months later, we were able to reconvene. (laughs) Um, So we've been talking for a few weeks about what we wanted to discuss on this episode. And, you know, really, I'd been I'd been hopeful. I'd been happy about, I guess, the inroads that we've been making as far as the proverbial clinician researcher divide. And, you know, I'll let Paula chat here in a second about how this doesn't even exist where she's from. But um, you know, I, I think things such as these podcasts and blogs and even the conferences, I had such a great time at the ASHA convention, just talking with researchers and getting to know their stories. And I know they enjoy talking to clinicians and we are all on the same team. So this whole concept that there's this great divide and why is it us versus them, them versus us, where does this concept even come from? So that's the premise for this talk today. And, you know, Paula, I'd love if you could just, you know, I I ran into Paula this weekend at the convention and, you know, we said, oh, we're so excited for this talk this week. And she said, I just don't even get it. She said, this isn't even a thing in Britain. She said it much, you know, in her much better accent than I did. But I'd love for you, Paula, to kind of elaborate on that. So, yeah, um, in our very small world of swallowology, and I can say this because I was only the second PhD swallowologist in Britain, um, I don't know of a researcher who was not a clinician for several years before going on to do a PhD. And I know a number of clinicians who don't have PhDs who are highly involved in very good research. And we were just talking earlier on about the fact that the equivalent of the NIH in the UK has specific grant process grant awards to encourage clinicians to to enter the clinical research kind of track. They want them staying as clinicians, but they are dedicating uh, money to specific research master's programs, to PhDs, to interdisciplinary projects. And, And it's interesting because I never had that sense when I was in Britain that there was such a divide between academics and clinicians until I came here. And I, I don't really understand it. I, there's probably a whole load of reasons why this came about, partly because up until very recently with the Tory government, we had time within our clinical days to devote to research. And the people in this country are under, you know, ludicrous productivity requirements. And we hear this all the time because health is a business over here. So there may be a component of that. And there may be a component of some people when, I I don't know whether it was sort of pure academics stepped into the world of speech pathology or speech pathologists moved into the world of academics a hundred years ago, probably, but it's almost like a closed shop. I don't understand why so many people, and I hear this in my own department and elsewhere, PhD qualified people saying it's only PhD qualified people who should be teaching our students and who should be doing the research. 
And there are several PhD trained people that I wouldn't let near a classroom of students. And there are several master's level clinicians that I would, I would have them in charge of the world, you know, and I just, yeah, I just don't understand this. It's like a professionist, you know, like being a racist. Yeah. Yeah. Have to be one or the other. Right. Right. What, what are you smiling about, Marty? I, you know, based on what she said, I, the only thing that I could do is speculate and probably sound like an ass doing it. You know, it, it, there are a lot of things that come to mind here, but it, it's one of those things that in any world, this doesn't make sense to me. Having not been in Britain to know the other side and understand the philosophies from this side, as I said, all I can do is speculate and I would hate to even do that. In my own mind, my own philosophy, it seems like you could take me out of the United States, put me in Britain, and I'd function very well. So I, I don't get it either, but I also didn't know the other side of the world. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, from the whole reason that I started this podcast is just, as Paula said, we're under such crazy productivity requirements And I'm always one that's, I've just always wanted to know more. I've always wanted to know more. And as someone that is super passionate about always wanting to know more, I had such crazy productivity requirements that I had no time to be, you know, it'd be 11 o'clock at night and I'd be pulling up a journal article. So I think my frustration stemmed from, okay, today I have 20 minutes to set aside to read something. And I'm going to pick this article out of, you know, dysphagia journal and I'm going to read it. And it ends up being some article that has absolutely nothing to do with what I'm working on with my patients, has no clinical applicability to me. So therefore, I toss the baby out with the bathwater and journals are hogwash. You know, not not that's not me at all. But I'm just saying I know that's a lot of what clinicians talk about sometimes is the frustration with journals. So that's kind of where I stepped in and thought, you know, there's this need, there's, there's blogs, there's podcasts that maybe we can just start talking about things and maybe meet people halfway with, let's talk about the research. Let's talk about what's out there because we as clinicians need the research. We need to know what's going to be the, what is the best thing statistically for our patient. So I think, you know, that's really where I climbed on my soapbox and decided that I was going to start talking about these things. And then this weekend at the ASHA convention, it was a great, great, great weekend. Probably my most favorite conference I've ever been to in terms of just getting to talk to so many great people. But I did have a few people, a group of people that I talked to that said that they would never tell their students to speak or to read blogs or listen to podcasts because they're not journal articles and they don't think that they're reputable or credible. And I think that was like a gigantic punch in the gut because here we are about to do this podcast about how there shouldn't be a researcher clinician divide. And these researchers are telling me to They're go away. Reinforcing. So <laughs> <laughs> They're yeah. reinforcing the divide. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, you know, from, you know, the clinician standpoint, how'd that make you feel? Like a piece of crap. I felt like I was two inches tall. Like everything I've been doing with hours and hours and hundreds of hours and thousands of dollars that I've poured into this podcast that it was all for naught. And clearly uh, there are tens of thousands, and I can say that quite comfortably, uh, individuals who think otherwise. Yeah. So what led to this idea? 
where did it come from? Does it exist in other media? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's one of those things where, you know, maybe it doesn't have the stamp of approval by some accrediting body or it doesn't have a, and I'm going to use the, the air quotes here, some big name researcher standing behind it, much like the dentist in the white coat that says four out of five dentists say that this toothpaste is the one to use. <laughs> you know, I, my question on those commercials, quite frankly, is what about that fifth dentist? Yeah. You know, which seemingly is the individual you're talking about, the naysayer. You know, it sounds to me as if journals have a purpose and the articles within journals have a specific purpose. So do blogs, so do video blogs, so do podcasts have different purposes. Can't we all just play in the same sandbox together? I I know, I know, I know. Can't we just be like Britain? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wouldn't say it's perfectly ideal over there. <laughs> but hypothetically, you know, we, we had a little chat before we started recording this thing. And and it's great. I love talking to these two folks because ideas get generated that I hadn't really thought about before. And a research paper should be about sharing information that's helpful in whatever field you're in. And for us, the bottom line is the patient, right? And this research paper, particularly up until recently, everyone was obsessed with quantitative data and randomized control trials and all the rest of it. But a research paper, quantitative research paper, is just, it's an aggregate mean of a population, some characteristic of a population, right? And there's a lot of very bad research out there. Now, Blogs to me are, and Teresa was just trying to educate us on the difference between blogs, podcasts, video blogs, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) But they're a kind of, they're an electronic and it could be a Facebook page or it could be a recording like this or it could be a live. If you think of the Asher, the other webinars, the ones that you don't get CEUs for, but you've got a couple of people there talking in real time, a web chat, maybe it's the web chats, fending off questions all in real time. And these are sort of technologically advanced versions of two or three people meeting, you know, over the coffee machine and saying, oh, did you see such and such? Have you read this new guideline? Have you, rarely would people say, have you read this research paper? That would be an ideal world. But but it's the sharing of information that's going to make a difference in the clinical world, not the publishing of the paper. That's a very, in my opinion, a very static piece of information, which in and of itself is never going to help a patient. You can't put the research paper under the pillow of the patient and think that the findings are going to somehow help them. Like I used to do when I was revising for exams, because I was, I'm rubbish at revision, so I'd put the book <laughs> under my pillow. Like, I'm prepared to think anything could happen. Um, she was that desperate. Somebody has to implement. Yeah, that's going to be me someday, Paula. Yeah. School was not my strong point. So somebody has to implement whatever information it is, right? The IKEA flat pack furniture 
doesn't just build itself. And the people who have to implement that are the people working clinically. And I don't want to give a title to them because it could be someone who's published a lot of research is also still working clinically, or it could be someone who's never done any research, but, but they're the people. And that's the foundation of evidence-based practice is information, good information, robust information, a clinical implementer, if you like, and the patient. You can't do evidence-based practice, which equates to good ethical care. If you've only got two of those three components, let you know, certainly not if you've only got one of them. And so I think the question is not should we be ignoring or loving blogs and podcasts any more than it should be you know I don't know why we're reading research papers because they've got no idea what goes on in the real world it's how do we make a judgment over those complementary sources of information how do we encourage people to know the good from the bad I, I think in a word and you used it complementary sound sums it up um, these are different takes on virtually the same or similar topics. One is perhaps more approachable by a person who is not as familiar with the research. One is certainly easier or quicker to read than a 10-page journal article. All deliver some level of information. The good, my personal opinion, uh, podcasts and blogs have the original references they're not making blanket statements with, that can't be backed up and can't be found in the literature. They're largely written or verbal discussions of what the literature contains that serves a purpose. So I'm going to step up onto one of my little soapboxes now, thinking about <laughs> what Marty was saying there. And one of my peeves is the writing the dissemination of research. And I'm sure all the people who are at ASHA, and I absolutely, I do think this is the best ASHA I was ever at with lots of students. There was lots of energy, met lots of people. It was just, it was so nice. And I'm sure people sat in oral presentations, understanding pretty much everything. And I'm sure they sat in presentations thinking, I have got no idea what this person's talking about. Absolutely no idea what this person's talking about. And it's not, it's not the evidence, the research findings, or the political opinion itself that is the problem. It's how we translate, how we get this information out to people. And I'm going to read here, because I've been given permission, a little paragraph from an essay that George Orwell wrote in 1953. And he's talking about um, politics and the English language and how basically politicians ruin language, but for their own nefarious ends. So he talks here about one section is called pretentious diction. And this is 1953, right? Words like phenomenon, element, individual as a noun, objective, categorical, effective, virtual, basic, and he lists a few mores, are used to dress up simple statements and give an air of scientific impartiality to biased judgments. Adjectives like epoch-making, epic, historic, unforgettable, blah, 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 are used to dignify the sordid process of international politics. 
while writing that aims at glorifying war usually takes on an archaic colour, its characteristic words being realm, throne, sword, shield, banner, etc. Foreign words and expressions such as cul-de-sac, de a machina, mutatis mutandis, status quo, which is actually a band, and a few more, are used to give an air of culture and elegance. Except for the useful abbreviations, i.e., e.g., and etc., there is really no need for any of the hundreds of foreign phrases now current in English. Bad writers, and especially scientific, political, and sociological writers, are nearly always haunted by the notion that Latin or Greek words are grander than Saxon ones, and unnecessary words like expedite, ameliorate, predict, extraneous, something I can't even pronounce, clandestine, da-da-da, and hundreds of others constantly gain ground from their Anglo-Saxon opposite numbers. The jargon peculiar to Marxist writing hyena, hangman, cannibal, petty bourgeois, blah, 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 consists largely of words and phrases translated from Russian, German, or French. But the normal way of coining a new word is to use a Latin or Greek root with the appropriate affix and, where necessary, the I-Z-E formation. It's often easier to make up words like this, de-regionalize, impermissible, extramarital, winterize, and so forth, than to think up the English words that will cover one's meaning. The result in general is an increase in slovenliness and vagueness. He was, he was on a mission, that guy. And then, so 1953, then 2014, Stephen Pinker writes in the Chronicle of Higher Education an article called Why Academics Stink at Writing. <laughs> and we can, we can get you the, the references for this. And he gives an excellent example. I suffered the daily experience of being baffled by articles in my own field, my subfield and even my sub-subfield. The method section of an experimental paper explains, participants read assertions whose veracity was either affirmed or denied by the subsequent presentation of an assessment word. After some detective work, I determined that it meant participants read sentences, each followed by the word true false. The original academies was not as concise, accurate, or scientific as the plain English translation. So why did my colleague feel compelled to pile up the polysyllables? And I think this gets at uh, something that I attack viciously in my writing class. We need to, it's our job as authors to make our information accessible to the reader. If the reader can't read it and understand it, it doesn't mean that they're thick. It means that we have done a poor job at writing. And when I was first in research, so I'd been several years working in clinic, and my background's actually in maths and geophysics, so, you know, pretty scientific stuff. And I was doing all this research in swallowing and breathing and sounds and all the rest of it. And I knew that field inside out and back to front. And it was, I can't remember how many years I'd been working, but several years in research. And I read a paper that was on my topic. It was the exact stuff that I was reading. And it was the first time I thought, do you know, it's not me being a bit thick. The writing is actually really bad because I couldn't understand this paper. It was by a well-known author in my own field. And I think that lots of clinicians and I would argue quite a few researchers, but they won't admit it, think that they can't handle this stuff or it's from another world because of the way it's written, the very sort of practical stuff. And, and that helps push a wedge between these two groups. Well, 
<laughs> yes. All right. I, I, well, in yeah. there, Paula. Yeah. I think I think you're on to something. Um, interestingly enough, uh, in some ways similar to what we've been discussing, something, uh, I guess, almost the equivalent of a blog, but for researchers, there are websites that are endorsing the lay language translation, if you will, and I, I quite frankly have issue with that, of journal articles. So, so they're effectively referencing the journal article, and they're asking researchers to, in lay language, discuss what the methods and the results were. Although their efforts are noble, you're effectively saying to the researcher who was not so good at writing in the first place to repackage the same information in writing with equally poor writing. I don't know about anybody else's time with regard to this, but it seems like a little bit of a rat wheel uh, with regard to whether we're going to get anywhere with that. I, I think what it really takes is an interview by somebody who doesn't speak the, quote, language of the journal article with the researcher to have that discussion of what are you really talking about? What does it really mean? What did you do? Tell me what you did. And have that person write the translation, if you will. So to that end, blogs and podcasts, in fact, do that. And I think where they really excel in terms of getting the message out there. They reach thousands of people and not just people who can pull up an article on PubMed or CINAHL. This is the public. These are policymakers. These are, mm -hmm. you know, your mother and father who are looking to help you or somebody they know through a disease or a disorder, for example, um, and trying to find the information that they need that is based in the fact of the journal article, but can be understood at an eye's glance or at an ear's notice. And that's really where these things excel. When I, I had a conversation at ASHA with someone from ASHA, and they asked me if I could change anything about ASHA, what would I change? And I said, I would tell them to stop deleting their policy statements that they keep writing. So they keep putting out these policy statements. And then like two or three years later, whether they're deleted or they're morphed into, I think now it's what, what section is it that they're in now? But there's this whole thing of like clinicians are finally making some headway with getting their administrators or their policymakers to read this information, read this research, and they go and click on the link from our governing body, and it's no longer there. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I, you know, I love that we're to the point that we can disseminate this information in ways that our policymakers, even our patients' families can read, click, print it off, but it doesn't help when it's not where it's supposed to be. And that's just plain web maintenance. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I think somebody needs to go through many of these websites just to make sure that the links are still live. Yeah. Well, they said that the board of directors voted to move it to a different section, but I think they need to pull the audience before they do that. The board of directors are probably not the people trying to find the bloody door in the first place. <laughs> right. There's something to be called, right. you know, there's clarity, there's transparency, 
right. and between right. the two of them, <laughs> it, we don't need either. What we need is ability. Right. Because. Well, so let me, so let me ask you, Marty, cause you said that um, pre recording, you said that a lot of these bigger journal articles like JAMA and things like that are now putting out their own podcasts. Yeah. So in talking about the language, are they just reading the actual journal article or are they discussing it in a way that we can all understand? <laughs> so there's two approaches that I'm aware of. One is essentially interview the author. The author essentially, of course, is the person who is most knowledgeable about the topic of that article. And therefore, it's just a conversation with that individual. It's very much in a similar way to you interviewing any author of any article and having that discussion. You know, it's got fancy music and, you know, there's cool editing and all the rest of that stuff. It sounds almost like a radio show or a, or a TV show. You know, but editing aside, content is very similar to what you do here. The second form that I have heard is that based on an article, they have a panel and they discuss it in this limited panel. So, for example, and the author may or may not be involved with that panel. So, for example, there was one that I was listening to about approaching patients in the ICU and dealing with delirium. It wasn't the author of the article. It was a panel of essentially being the researcher clinician that they are, taking the best of both worlds in some sense. What do you do with these patients? And it was a roundtable discussion in some way similar to what we're doing right now. So, you know, I, I'm seeing many parallels between Swallow Your Pride and JAMA. Yes, I said it here. Wow. Okay. I, you know, so bottom line here is that each flavor, if you will, of a podcast, each flavor of social media broadly has its, has its purpose, has its point. Uh, really what it boils down to is, is the content worthy? Is the information that is being discussed going to benefit someone somewhere? And to be honest with you, at face value, people may scoff at podcasts. And frankly, I was one of those many years ago. I didn't even know what a podcast was. I didn't even know how to download a podcast. Uh, the closest I ever came was coming to a web page and clicking play. I didn't even know you could get it on your device. Okay. I have since reformed my ways and realized what, you know, my errors were to realize that, yes, what a portable format this can be. So I'm learning on this, you know, great curve of electronic media that we have. But the reality is that it's a great way to spend time no matter where you are. Number one. Number two, the content is rich, whether it's the speakers, the combination of articles. I mean, if you could look at this as a real either in-depth discussion of a single article or the equivalent of a review article with personal opinions and discussions shared in a two-way format, not just one way at the reader, this is what social media has given us. It's a great opportunity. Blogs are not as two-way, but there's an opportunity for comments and questions and responses. 
So though, even though it may not appear as though it's a two-way conversation, it really can be depending on how you use it. Uh, podcasts are two-way conversations that you're listening to on multiple ends that if you care to, because it is posted to a website, you can leave a comment and add a third perspective if you choose. So the reality is, you know, why aren't people, why aren't more people doing this? And, you know, this is a reformed person who didn't know what a podcast was or a blog, or I couldn't even define these terms five years ago. Well, I think, you know, it's when, when I started this whole thing, it's because I wanted people to be open-minded to topics and swallowing and how we treat our patients. And I didn't realize that I had to get people to open their minds up just to the concept of listening to a I, podcast. I don't even know if it was that, you know, my mind was open to it. I just didn't know how to do it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Maybe that, maybe that's where I missed the boat. I had to teach people how to, to listen to it first. And I consider myself a yeah, pretty okay. tech savvy individual. I can find my way around most software and electronics, but this for whatever yeah. reason was elusive to me. And I, I, I mean, it was the, it was these words that suddenly appeared in the English language of blog, podcast, um, video blog. If blog wasn't enough, they now added a an adjective to you know go along with this. I didn't know right. what in the world these things were. Well, now there's people that say that they don't like listening, so I had to create transcriptions of every episode well. too, so that they could read it. So there you go. Get your information however you need to get it, people. Just please get it. That's what I'm saying. It's, you know, we're all different types of learners and speech language pathologists yeah. know this about people. So it's great that we're able to transcribe, offer it in video. And if you don't want to see or read it, there's always the listening mode that, you know, podcasts offer. Right. And if you or your facility are interested in purchasing a true high-definition fees imaging system, please check out our wonderful sponsor, EndoHD. That's ndohd.com forward slash contact. EndoHD is a true high-definition endoscopy system created specifically for SLPs by an SLP for conducting fee studies. EndoHD can be a case-portable system as well as a carded system depending on your needs. It has fully automated archiving with zero downtime, intuitive software with one-touch recording, immediate fee study review, and a customizable fees report template is provided. So check them out at www.ndohd.com forward slash contact to discuss your specific fees requirements, pricing, or to request a live product demonstration. So I think the question here is not, is a research paper better than a blog or a podcast or vice versa? But the thing that we as educators, if I put my educator hat on, I always tell my students that no good professor ignores Google or Wikipedia. And those that tell you they do are lying. Um, I love Wikipedia. A very eminent colleague of mine here hates it. I do tell my students not to reference them. Right, right. But it's it's a place to start Absolutely. finding knowledge. And particularly Wikipedia is often tempered by a number of uh, writers, which people don't realize. But what, what we have to do is be discerning in what we think is right. And then as educators, we have to teach people how to be discerning. And there's a remarkable a remarkably strong um and there's a there's a word for it but I often will introduce a paper or a 
blog or something and I'll say, I really like this thing. This person talks a lot of sense because they agree with me and therefore they must be right. And uh, there was a study in the beginning. Confirmation bias. Confirmation bias, that's it. There was a really nice study in the BMJ that looked at this and we we tend to think things are good that agree with our own inherent biases. And it's very hard to get us to, to change that. So that, that at the back of your mind, or the back of my mind, I'm still trying to teach students and clinicians and whoever I get to hang out with don't think just because it's written by a famous person, it's going to be good. Uh, and, you know, don't think just because it comes from a certain place, it's not going to be good. So I've had comments when I'm asking students to review research papers and they have to do the pros and the cons. Comments <laughs> like, in the con side, well, it's from Finland. So? And so I have to say, so how does that affect the robustness of the paper? Well, we don't know how they do things in Finland. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and I'm like, well, no, but then you get at that through, if it's a research paper, you know, are the methods really clear? Could you could you do the method that's in the paper? And uh, and then we have people who will, who will not go to sessions, said Asher, by, of opinions that they hold opposite to themselves if they go to any other sessions than their own, and there's a lot of researchers and teachers only present at ASHA and never go and listen to anybody else. And that's, that's also a slightly worrisome thing. I got to tell you, those are the sessions I like going to because the devil's advocate in me wants to know the other arguments that I may not have thought Mm -hmm. about that. I, you know, talk about confirmation bias or, you know, that's the epidemiology term. The lay term is self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, Mm -hmm. the idea here is that we all come into research. We all come into anything. I don't care what it is. Purchasing a car, choosing what food we eat, Uh, what airline we make a reservation on or otherwise. We all come in with preconceived notions of the way the world works and what we like and what we don't like. The opposite side also needs to be true in order for you to understand full on, the full perspective. So those really are the sessions that I learn most in because I know the stuff that I know. I know the stuff that I agree with. It's the stuff that I don't agree with that I don't know as well. And I want to find more about. Someone asked me this weekend why why I wanted to start this podcast. And I just said, well, because I don't know what I don't know. Exactly. And he was like, what do you mean? And I was like, I, there's no way I can know everything I need to know in the field of dysphagia. I got to interview all these other smart people and find out what they know. And then you find out it's not so much. <laughs> so so no. self-fulfilling prophecy blown to smithereens yeah. is really what that is. Right, right, right. Oh, you're right. I am smarter than you. Okay, <laughs> moving on. Okay. You were able to stop this whole... You're smarter thing, differently. Right? Yes, yes. Yes, different is my middle name. Yes. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. 
Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.